Hi guys and welcome back to a brand new podcast episode of the Carefree and Black Diaries podcast. I am the host and my name is Shakira. Welcome back if you are already a subscriber, if this notification came to your phone as soon as the episode dropped. Thank you for being subscribed to the podcast. I love you and I appreciate you. If you are new here, if it's your first time hearing my voice, if you're like, what is this? What's going on? Welcome. Go ahead and subscribe. And by subscribing via whatever podcast platform you're using to listen to the podcast on, you'll be notified every single time we have a brand new episode, which is every Tuesday at what time, y'all? 9 a.m. every Tuesday at 9 a.m. and if you're wondering why there's creepy Halloween music playing it's because we are smack dab in the middle we're actually almost done with our Blacktober series here on the podcast Um, but I'll tell you a little bit about what that is as we get into our topic I just want to say welcome right now and let's roll into our carefree updates so first things first If you did not watch Lovecraft Country last night, it was the season finale of the show. Oh my gosh, I promise I won't put any spoilers in here, but just know that I am grieving right now. I am grieving this week. I woke up grieving. I went to sleep last night grieving. I'm pretty sure I'll be grieving the rest of the week. But what am I supposed to watch on TV now? Like, P-Valley has gone off. Um, Lovecraft Country has gone off. There's only so much Netflix I can tolerate up to a point. Like, I'm a person who needs to watch TV. Like, I need to watch TV. I need to have a program that comes on at a certain time, you know, once a week for me to feel satisfied. What am I supposed to do now? Like, I I don't know what to do with myself, but it was so good. If you missed this season of Lovecraft Country, I highly suggest, remember I told you all, I think after the first episode that you should get into this show, if you did not listen, what are you doing? Like, you don't trust me? You don't trust my judgment? Listen to me. Watch the show. You will appreciate it. I promise. There's so much history in the show. There are so many underlying messages that you can deduct for yourself within the show. And I just love it. I love shows that um, make you think, not all the time. Now, listen, it has to be done correctly. I don't want to think with every show I watch, but I do appreciate a show like Lovecraft Country that makes me think and come up with my own conclusions about things. So check it out. If you missed it, um, no, actually, if you watched it last night and you know why I'm grieving today and this week, just, you know, keep me in your thoughts and your prayers. Now, also, speaking about entertainment and film slash television, I watched a movie on Amazon Prime this week. The name of the movie is Black Box. I feel like I included Black Box in, actually, I didn't. I'm thinking I did because I told you all about that Christmas movie that is coming out with Felicia Rashad. I thought I was talking about this movie, but this movie also has Felicia Rashad in it. And um, this guy, he's been in a few other things. Um, Do you all remember that movie Uncorked that was on Netflix? I think it was written and directed by Prentice Kenny who also is, I think he's the showrunner on Insecure. Anyway, the guy who stars in that movie is the guy who stars in Black Box. If you like 
thrillers, if you like mysteries, movies like that, I feel like you will enjoy um, Black Box. Now, to warn you, because I know my friends hate um, being scared while watching a movie. So if you are a person who does not like being scared, maybe it's not the movie for you. I'll just say that. So you might want to bypass this one. I'll watch something else this week and tell y'all about it next week for those who like romance and comedy and stuff like that. So check out Black Box on Amazon Prime. That's another thing. Now, also, we are also smack dab in the middle of voting. Have you all casted your votes yet? Have you all mailed your um, ballots in? Have you gone to early voting? Now, I just want to remind you that voting does not begin November 3rd. Voting ends November 3rd here in America. That is the last day to vote. Right now, we are in the process of early voting, so you can go to different sites and check out your needs. So if you need to have your ID to go with you, also on our Instagram page, Carefree and Black Diaries, there is a list you'll see um, a picture that says seven things to take with you when you go vote you can check out that post and see what those seven things are so that you are prepared i hope that you all will utilize your rights and your privilege to vote i'm not going to beat you over the head with the history you know because we have been there done that before but i will remind you that People fought for your right to vote. So please go out and vote. We need it. This is a crucial election. I feel like we say this every single time um, a presidential election rolls around. But this one is unlike anything I've ever seen before. So please go out and vote. Now, also, let me tell you all about some cute little stuff we have going on here for the podcast. So first of all, I told you all last week that we started a Patreon page. Please, if you are able to, I would appreciate if you are able to um, become a patron of the podcast. You will be having access to certain courses. So if you have a podcast yourself and you want to know how to start a podcast, if you want to know how to improve on your podcast, if you want to know how to market your podcast, um, how to reach out to guests, et cetera, et cetera. There's going to be a course over on the Patreon page. All you have to do is become a patron to have access to that course. Also, you'll have video podcasts, extra content, behind the scenes looks at everything that goes on with this podcast and also with the podcast Black History Moments and also with other things that I do outside of podcasting, so film, entertainment, things like that. So I would appreciate it. I'll put the Patreon link in the bio of the podcast and also in the bio of this podcast, bio description, in the description of this podcast, there is also a link to merch, to carefree merchandise. We released some new items um, last week. If you missed it, you missed the first, um, you know, few orders that were sent out this week and near the end of this week, the rest of them will be going out. But check out the merch. We have nice crew necks. Um, what else? Phone cases. What else? Uh, mugs for you to um, show off why you love this podcast so much and also we have protect black women um crew necks and mugs because we had an episode about protecting black women so i felt like it was necessary and also the right time so check those items out um make a purchase if you can it'll be there for you 
Now that is all I have for our carefree updates this week. Let's get into our sponsors really quickly because they keep the show running and then we'll get into our topic of the day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, as we always say, we are in the middle of Blacktober. This episode and the next episode will be the end of Blacktober. I am really sad about it because I love Blacktober here on the podcast so much. I have a thing. If you've been with me for a while, I have a thing about series here. I love doing series um, kind of topics because sometimes just one episode like like a one and done kind of thing just doesn't work for me. I feel like you need to dive deeper into certain things. But Blacktober, we talk about, um, I think last year we talked about gentrification. We talked about institutional racism, internal racism, and a few other things. But this year, um, we started off with, Oh gosh, what was the first episode in Blacktober? I know we talked about, oh, what is ghetto? Who defines what's ghetto? And then last week we talked about respectability politics, what that is, and how certain Black people can succumb to it to feel like if I behave better, then people in power will treat me better as a result of that. Now, today we are talking about, um, originally I was going to title this podcast episode, The History of the Projects, but, you know, I wanted to talk about where the projects came from, why they were built, um, et cetera, et cetera. But after getting deeper and deeper into researching the projects, I want to change that a little bit. So I'll still give you the history of it, but I think it's way more beneficial to talk about where the projects stand right now. So what do you think about when you hear the word projects? Well, you may think about like schoolwork or like work, work. Um, So maybe I should say when you hear the projects instead, like what visuals do you see when someone says the projects? Maybe you think of a place you grew up. Maybe you think low income. Maybe you think of black and brown people living there. Maybe you think of a rundown apartment building. Whatever it is that you think of when you hear the projects. Today, I want to try to break down where those visuals you have may come from and also tell you how the U.S. government created the projects and segregated America and cap it off with the issues facing the projects today. So the first thing I need you to know is that housing segregation was a result of federal policy, federal policies that were created during the Great Depression. So to run down that really quickly, so you have a little backstory. The Great Depression lasted from 1929 into the 1930s. 
it started with the stock market crash that happened in 1929, and it just spiraled on from there. So with the Great Depression and the war came housing shortages here in America. People needed places to stay. Um, Veterans were coming back from the war. Families were, you know, being created. People were getting married and having children. Black people who were transitioning out of the South and moving up North, people needed a roof over their heads. So the federal policies that helped segregate America mostly began during what is called or what was called, quote, the New Deal, and that happened under President Roosevelt. So there were two main policies that you should know about that were in the New Deal that contributed to this segregating or segregation of American neighborhoods. So when President Roosevelt took office in 1933, the Public Works Administration, that was the title of it, started to build the very first civilian public housing. So this housing was primarily designed to help white middle to lower class families. But it did, however, I'm not going to take it away from them. It did build some emphasis on some housing that was specifically for African-American families. Now, there was a rule established during the New Deal by Harold Ikes. He was the head of the Public Works Administration, and that rule said that public projects could not alter racial composition. Now, that rule was just a fancy way of saying that if this neighborhood is primarily white, we can't build public housing here and move a bunch of black people in. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and then it also said on the flip side of that, if this neighborhood is primarily black, we're not going to move a bunch of white people in here. So it went both ways. Now, the second major policy that happened during the New Deal was under the Federal Housing Administration. The Federal Housing Administration was established in 1934. Now, this agency, the Federal Housing Administration, they would not insure mortgages for Black families, and they also redlined or defined communities. Now, in an article by CBS News, also, I will be linking everything that I am referencing in the description of the podcast if you want to go and read any of this for yourself. If you want to go and watch any of these videos that I'm referring to later on, you can do that. So in an article by CBS News that was actually published June of this year, 2020, which goes to show that this is still an issue today, says that, quote, um, about redlining, quote, for decades, many banks in the U.S. denied mortgages to people, mostly people of color in urban areas, preventing them from buying a home in certain neighborhoods or getting a loan to renovate their house. The practice, once backed by the U.S. government, started in the 1930s and took place across the country. That includes in many of the nation's largest cities like Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, Tampa, and others with large minority populations. As a result, banks and other mortgage lenders commonly rejected loans for creditworthy borrowers based strictly on their race or where they lived. 
As part of that practice, financial firms, real estate agents, and other parties demarcated geographic areas that were effectively off limits for issuing loans. Scholars who study housing discrimination point to redlining as one factor behind the gulf of wealth between blacks and whites in the U.S. today. Black families have lost out on at least, at least $212,000 in personal wealth over the last 40 years because their homes were redlined, said real estate app Redfin. The term redlining is a nod to how lenders identified and referenced neighborhoods with a greater share of people deemed more likely to default on mortgage. Using red ink, lenders outlined on paper maps the parts of a city that were considered at high risk of default on the loans, as well as more desirable neighborhoods for approving a loan. Riskier neighborhoods were predominantly Black and Latino. So that's a quote from CBS News published this year. So redlining was and still is a problem today. Not only did the Federal Housing Administration do this back in the 1930s, but they also subsidized mass production builders of entire suburbs throughout the United States with the requirement that no homes be sold to African-Americans and, 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 no homes be resold to African-Americans. These developers got bank loans under the condition that they not sell to Black people or resell to Black people. It wasn't hidden. They didn't try to hide it. They didn't, you know, it wasn't a secret that they were all in on. It was written in the Federal Housing Administration's manual. This was in their manual. Now, their justification for this was that if Black people purchase homes in those areas, um, then in the suburbs, basically, then the property value would decrease of those areas. But that wasn't the case at all. Like, even though that was their argument, that wasn't the case. Actually, when Black people, on the rare occasion, if they were able to, purchased homes in those areas, the property value would actually increase because Black people were more willing to pay um, higher prices for a home than white families because housing was so restrictive for Black people. So they were willing to dish out what they needed to pay for the homes, even more so than white people, because they needed somewhere to stay. So in 1926, the Supreme Court said that it wasn't a violation of the Constitution to have these restrictions on housing for black people. That's crazy to me. But here we are, it's 2020, and we're even dealing with Roe versus Wade being a thing. Anyway, so here's a quote from another article that I was reading, and it says that the result had you know, been a one-two punch. So with public housing, federal and local government increased African-Americans' isolation in urban ghettos. And with mortgage guarantees, the government subsidized whites to abandon urban areas for the suburbs. The combination contributed heavily to the creation of the segregated neighborhoods. Here we go and schools that we know today, with truly disadvantaged minority students isolated in poverty-concentrated schools where teachers struggle unsuccessfully to overcome families' multiple needs. 
without these public policies, the racial achievement gap that has been so daunting to educators will be very different and a lesser challenge. That gap can't be addressed by nostalgia for a fanciful past when whites grew up in public housing and succeeded solely by benefiting from good teachers. The conventional idea that we now suffer from de facto segregation created by vague market and demographic forces um, is urban mythology. Residential segregation was as much the product of purposeful public policy as was school segregation. The legacy of both endures. And that's a quote from an article. So as I was reading this, you know, I I feel like we've had an episode. I know we have, but I can't put my finger on what the title of the episode was. But in that episode, we talked about how um, schools in lower income communities, you know, a lot of these schools receive funding based off of the neighborhoods that they are located in, the areas of town that they are located in. And that is still like a concept that I can't quite wrap my brain around because to me, and maybe it's just me, but to me, if there are schools that are in lower income neighborhoods, wouldn't they need more funding than a school would in a upper class neighborhood, right? Like if these students are at these lower income schools, and you know that they don't have access to the laptops or the most useful or up-to-date technology, why wouldn't the funding reflect that to be able to give those students access to those things as opposed to dishing out the cash to the students who have more than enough? Like, I can't quite wrap my mind around that, but anyway... Let's get back to the projects. So by 1973, gosh, President Richard Nixon, he would describe many public housing projects as now, mind you, this is the 70s. So they had by this point, many white people and families had moved. They had an incentive to move out of the project. So although it was built mainly for them in the beginning, it was theirs. Um, and it was nice. It was They were nice areas. So it was built for them. But after they were able to move off and get homes in the suburbs and black people were denied that, most of these projects were left to black and brown people. So here is where, you know, things kind of changed. So Richard Nixon, he says, quote, the pro- he described public housing projects as, quote, monstrous, depressing places, run down, overcrowded, and crime-ridden. It's something about hearing crime-ridden or high crime, anything with crime when referring to black and brown areas that really just does not sit well with my spirit. So when someone says something, and this might sound familiar, especially if you've been watching the news lately, when someone says something like, suburbs are being destroyed by other people moving in and crime is increasing that isn't a dog whistle that's not a dog whistle it's a direct reflection of racial prejudices and practices that are interwoven into our very flag that are interwoven into the very fabric of this country 
And if you're like, who said that, Shakira? I don't know who said that about the suburbs recently. Y'all president said that. Okay, moving on. So what about the projects today? Um, A lot of these housing buildings are over 70 years old, built in the early to mid-1900s. And even after all that time, there have been very few renovations made to these buildings. A few paint jobs here and there, but rarely have these buildings been kept up to code and standard. So I'm going to give you three housing projects that I watched some videos on. And again, I'll link them in the description. So the first is in Cairo, Illinois. If you're like me, if you heard Cairo, you might have automatically thought Cairo, Georgia, but it's Cairo, Illinois. And apparently this is a small town where a lot of the residents have moved because of, um, you know, lack of jobs. There aren't a lot of jobs. There is kind of like a really small city, um, not a lot going on there at all. But basically, in these housing projects that are there, there are insect infestations. There was one particular family that the video followed, and the mother was just talking about, you know, how poor the living conditions are there. So basically what happened in Cairo, Illinois, is that there was a mismanagement of funds by local and state officials. This is going to be something that is repetitive as I'm getting into these different stories. Um, so there was a mismanagement of funds. So allegedly, I have to say allegedly, the mayor, a previous mayor that they had, he was receiving funds to um, renovate the housing projects, keep them up to code and standard and everything. And he wasn't using the money for that. The money was not going into the housing projects. And now um, HUD, yes, HUD, is planning on tearing those housing projects down. And the residents, they feel like, you know, where are we supposed to go now? So they did say that they would give them um, the money that it would take to move their things somewhere else. But there are still other costs that the family would incur by having to move. And HUD is not covering those costs. Now, also moving on to the second housing projects, Jordan Downs housing projects in Watts. Now, this video... This video was made in 2016, so I'm not sure where they stand as of today. But HACLA in Los Angeles, they submitted an application. Now, tell me how wild this is. Yesterday, after I watched this video, I had to, like, really calm my nerves. I had to sit down and calm my nerves because I was just watching video after video and things that just seem so remedial, things that seem so easy... Um, these people were not doing what needed to be done, and it was just really upsetting me and my homegirls. So, Hackler, who is the housing authority in Los Angeles, they submitted an application for federal funds in the amount of $30 million to the federal government to pay for the Jordan Downs housing projects improvements. Ask me why they didn't get the funds. Just ask me real quick. Shakira, why didn't they get the money? I'm glad you asked. They failed to submit a letter of support from the mayor in the application packet. I just need you to sit on that. Because after I heard that in the video, I, I just paused it really quickly. And I gathered my thoughts. And then I ran it back. I said, let me rewind this really quickly so I can verify that I heard what I thought I heard. 
And indeed, I heard what I thought I heard. Hakla did not submit a letter of support from the mayor. Something so small in the application packet to get $30 million for the housing project. That, moving on, moving on. Let's move on to Brownsville in New York. So they filed Brownsville, the housing project in New York, is one of the biggest in the country, houses thousands and thousands of residents. Now they filed a suit against the city for mismanagement of funds in 2016. The infant mortality rate in Brownsville is the fourth highest in the city. So one resident, her story, she had a daughter early. So when she was seven months seven months pregnant, she had her daughter. Um, and they had to give the baby shots for her lungs that weren't um, developed the way they should have. Her brain wasn't developed the way it should have been. Um, and all of this was because of the mold and mildew that her mom had been breathing in in those apartments. So at the time the documentary was filmed, um, the child was 11 and she had so many medications and steroids that she was still having to take due to those medical complications. She was on the dance team at her school and the school called the mom one day because she collapsed from a severe asthma attack. So all of these issues, like when you think of, and also the children that, you know, reside in Brownsville have a high rate of being hospitalized because of the poor living conditions in those apartments. So it may be easy for people to say, well, why don't they just move? That's so much easier said than done. Many of these apartments, these housing projects, public housing, whatever you want to call it, they charge tenants, many of them, one-third of their income is what they pay for rent. So let's break that down. So according to Pew Research, speaking on average now, average, keep in mind, average consists of everybody. Low-income households had income less than 48500 in 2018. Now, 48500 low income. I know a lot of people that have never made $48,500 in a year. A lot of people who have never made that. So keep that in mind. So, But we're just going to roll with that since that's what Pew Research says. Now, also keep in mind that there are so many other factors at play here. So even if a person is making that much money, people have children. There are pay gaps amongst women and minorities. Um, People have debt and so much more that you have to factor in. So if I have a job, let's just say I have a job making the $48,000 a year before tax, That means that I'm taking $4,000 home a month before tax. A third of that means that I'm paying $1,333 in rent. So if the housing project that I reside in is charging me one-third of my rent, then that means I'm paying $1,333 in rent. Now, many people in the projects, and I'm going to say this because I know a lot of people in the projects, are not paying that much in rent. So that means their their income is less than that 48,000 that people, you know, are saying is the average of low income 
um, households. So, but we still rolling with it just because. So I'm paying $1,333 in rent. I also have to pay for utilities. I have to pay for food because I can't starve. I have to have health care because these living conditions are so bad. I have to be able to go to the hospital if I get sick. Transportation to and from work to be able to even have an income to live here. Oh, did I mention I have two kids that I'm taking care of as well who also have to be fed, who have to be clothed, who have to be transported to and from school. All of this adds up. So it's easy to just say, well, if the living conditions are so bad, why don't they just move? But where else will they be able to stay being able to pay what they're paying while living in public housing? I'll wait. Besides a homeless shelter, I'll wait. Where? Where? Where are they supposed to stay? Now, also, just saying, well, why don't they just move? Also discounts the fact that people have created communities there. There are people living in housing projects that were born and raised in these communities, um, and they don't know anything else. A lot of those people, I think 40% of people that live in housing projects or public housing are elderly people, are senior citizens. And because there is such a community within these housing projects, they know everyone there by name. They have events. They celebrate each other's victories and they mourn their losses together. So, for example, my family is from a very small town in Florida. My actually both sides, my mom's family and my dad's family. My mom and dad are both from Florida and they both came from very small towns. I'm talking like so small if you blink when you drive through, you're already out of the city limits. So that's kind of an exaggeration. But it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. So my dad's side, there is a housing project there in the city. So I cannot even tell you how many of my family members have lived in those projects. But anyway, my aunt lives there now, one of my aunts. And I went there two weeks ago on a Sunday. Yes, it was a Sunday and everybody knows that on Sunday, my aunt cooks for the projects. People come by and get a plate. They don't have to pay. You just come and get it. And that's what I mean by community. So if someone is hungry, they know they can go to my aunt's house and get a plate and be fed. That is community. And I think people have a tendency to associate crime with the projects. Um, But crime happens everywhere. Like, let's keep it a bug. Let's keep it G. Crime happens everywhere. Someone got robbed when I was in grad school. Someone got robbed on campus and it was late at night. And now, so as a grad student, I was getting my master's and I was always on campus late, like midnight, one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, like just doing stuff, you know, trying to finish work because I knew once I got home, I wasn't going to be able to focus the way I needed to if I were on campus. So Anyway, someone got robbed while I was in grad school on campus, and I was attending a PWI, (laughs) mind you, a PWI. PWI stands for Predominantly White Institution, and I felt more unsafe there than I ever felt in the projects in my life, okay? So that idea of it's not safe in the projects, 
that we have to do away with that idea because I'm not okay I can't speak for everybody I'm not gonna speak for everybody but I'll say for my experience I felt more safe walking in the projects at night than I felt walking on campus at night okay I'll just say that um and that's not to discount the crime that does happen so in Brownsville the housing project in New York City because the buildings are so unsecure um there aren't, you know, there aren't any security detail overnight or anything like that. I think they said the rape cases in Brownsville were up 178%, I want to say, um, because these stairwells and the rooftops, they're just unsafe. There aren't people monitoring these hallways and these corridors. So it's not to discount that the crime that does happen there because it does happen. But just speaking from my experience. So Hood, who is um, headed by Ben Carson now, who was a surgeon. Gosh, I'm not going to talk about Ben. I'm going to leave him alone today. So Hood is not in the business of really rebuilding housing anymore. They lost federal funds to construct homes for low-income Americans through the years. And... I was just thinking as I was watching these different videos, if we took the funds that we put into building high-rise apartment buildings, if we just took that money that we put into those buildings, and instead of doing that, if we put that same amount of funding into renovating or building new buildings for housing projects, for public housing, how much better off would we be? So I was in a car accident um, February of last year. And so as I was waiting for the rest of the police to come and stuff like that, um, one, the very first officer on the scene, I was talking to him and he was like, for some, he knew I was like shaking up because I was hurt. So I'm like standing on the curb, hurt or whatever, and I was scared. It was my first time. No, it wasn't my first time being in a car accident. It was my first time being in a car accident um, that did that much damage. So he knew that I just needed something to take my mind off of things. So he just started talking to me, and we were talking. Some kind of way, we ended up talking about, like, apartment buildings where I live. And so he proceeds to tell me that, so many, you know, over the years, I was born and raised here. Over the years, there have been so, especially recently, so many apartment buildings just like popping up out of nowhere. And every time I see them, I'm like, there aren't even that many people here. Like, yes, this is a college town, but a lot of these people, um, some of them do stay, but a lot of them come for the four years or two years that they need for school and they go back home or they move somewhere else. So why are we building all of these apartment buildings? And maybe it wouldn't bother me so much if so there's a community in my town. It's called Frenchtown. Um, if you I may do a podcast episode on Frenchtown over on the other podcast, Black History Moments. So. It was a predominantly black um, community, especially back in the day. Um, it was booming for black businesses. So Frenchtown is still there, but it has definitely gone down over the years. 
Recently, they've built a lot of apartment buildings in Frenchtown, and they knocked down the homeless shelter that was also in Frenchtown. So they said that they were going to knock the building down with plans of building another homeless shelter on the outskirts of town. And my thinking is that they were doing that to try to appeal to people to move into those apartments because if you have a homeless shelter there, then it's not going to be appealing to students or individuals that want to move into these apartments because it's, oh my gosh, there's a shelter down the street. No, we can't live here. So that is how I feel. Um, I feel that was the reasoning for tearing down the homeless shelter. But gentrification is a thing. Gentrification is dangerous. And so with the case in Watts with Jordan Downs, they gave their residences a certificate basically just a piece of paper saying that, you know, we guarantee that when we build the new housing projects that you will have a place to stay. My alarm bell started going off as I was watching the video because a certificate is not a binding agreement. And the way they were talking about how they were going to rebuild the community, they said they were going to have businesses there, They're going to have an area for the tenants that need public housing, but there are also going to be other areas that are for middle to upper class individuals. My alarm bell started going off because they started using this term mixed use communities. So for one, how do you guarantee that these people are going to have somewhere to live how do you guarantee that you won't raise their cost of rent? How do you guarantee that you aren't going to um, show favor to middle to upper class individuals who are going to be looking into moving into this town? It just sounds a lot like gentrification to me as they were explaining it. Uh, So you have to be really careful when people start using that term mixed use communities. So after watching so many of these videos and reading so many articles, I just tried to like, I found myself trying to figure out what exactly would fix the issues surrounding public housing. So on one hand, I feel like some of these areas and these cities, they just don't have the jobs for people like Cairo, Illinois. Um, They don't have the jobs for people to be able to afford any other type of housing. So there's lack of jobs. Now, on another hand, I'm thinking the cost of living has gone up so high. It's hard for many people to pay for basic living expenses. So even with adding jobs in these areas, how do we ensure that the cost of living um, doesn't rise um, and get ridiculously high? And then on another note, like I feel like so much of this has to do with poor government, poor decisions by city and local officials, poor decisions and discriminatory practices within HUD, within the Federal Housing Administration and also local housing administrations. And so often people have this just pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, but How do you tell someone to do that if that person doesn't even have shoes? So I'm going to leave you all with that. Um, This one was, I don't know about you, but this one really bothered me as I was getting ready for this podcast episode because 
there's so many issues surrounding public housing even today um and the living conditions and it's just it's so much but it's just like what do you do what do we do to fix these issues so I wanted to bring that to your attention so it's something that you can think about and also hopefully it helped change any visuals or ideas that you had in your mind about the projects and hopefully it changed it into a more positive outlook on public housing and the projects don't forget to stay black and carefree you can shop carefree merch with the link in bio and you can become a patron with the link in bio and i will see you guys next week in the last episode of blacktober see you guys later bye